Thanks, Jess. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Joshua. I haven't met you. One of the pastors here. Didn't introduce myself properly last time. And uh, let, let me pray as we get stuck into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us. Help us to recognize and respond properly now and here, knowing that it is you who speak. Please help me to be clear and faithful, and please uphold my voice. Amen. Some things in life are just a bit hard to know. Uh, Like yesterday, I was at Nick and Katie's wedding from our evening service, and it was hard to know have Rod and Leone ever had a fight. They just, the dinner came out, and they just perfectly knew exactly what the other person wanted and swapped it. It was just like a well-oiled machine, and I thought, wow, it's just hard to know. Are there any chinks in the armour? There's other things that are hard to know. There's bigger things that are hard to know. We heard about Ukraine, and sometimes we think, how and when will the war in Ukraine end? And I'm praying it does soon, but you go, it's just so hard to know. How can you possibly know? Some things in life are really hard to know. Occasionally they're small things and they don't really matter, but other times there's things that are massive and have huge consequences. This morning we want to ask one of the biggest questions that people find hard to know. Is that what God is like? Is God hard to know? Can you know God? So there's lots of people out there who believe that there's something, there's something more out there, but they're just not exactly sure what it is. Uh, Surveys show that two in three Aussies believe in spiritual things, but many of them don't know who or what exactly it is that's out there. There might be a God. I just don't know. Can you know God? And can you be certain? You might be pretty confident that there's a God out there, but there might be those times when you think, man, I've put all of my chips in this one basket Should I just take a couple out? Like, is it going to pan out? How can I be certain? How can you know? We all have moments of doubt. And if you do know God, what kind of knowledge do you have? Does it change anything for you? I was talking with someone during the week who said, I've known God for quite a while, but as I reflect on it, I don't think that knowing God has changed me that much. Is that you? Have you felt like that? This morning, God wants you to know that you can know him, that you can be certain about throwing all your chips in with him, and he wants you to know that when you do know him, it'll drive everything, it'll change your life. So let's get stuck in. Point one, knowing God drives everything. Uh, We jump back into the story from the last few weeks with this guy, Paul, and uh, Paul's a guy who knows God deeply, and you can see that it drives everything for him. So the situation with Paul is that he's just been kicked out of Macedonia, and he's waiting in Athens for his friends to rock up. So he's thinking, well, while I'm waiting in Athens, I might as well do some sightseeing. Uh, He would have upgraded the storage on his phone and done one of those Kentucky tours, because he knows that Athens is a city of beauty, a city of culture, a city of the arts and philosophy. Uh, Athens was home to famous old dead guys like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Uh, People came from all over to visit Athens to be inspired, to find knowledge. Uh, People were usually impressed. People were blown away by what they found. But have a look at what Paul's response is as he looks around. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him 
as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked within him. He was increasingly stirred up and triggered the more he walked around. He felt this kind of combination of anger, grief and sadness. Why? That's not what people normally feel when they walk around a place like Athens. It's because the city was full of idols. See, Athens was a polytheistic place. That is, they believed in many gods and they made statues of those different gods so they could worship them. Idols are something that you worship, that you send your life around. They don't have to be physical statues, but in the ancient world they often were. More broadly, an idol is the thing that gives you meaning and significance. It's the thing that you'd be most sad about if it got taken away. For me, an idol used to be cricket, right? I used to centre my life around and worship cricket. The Athenians, they worshipped various gods and idols, and that was the thing that gave them meaning and purpose. And this made Paul's blood boil. Why? It's because he knows God. He knows that the true God hates idolatry. He knows that there's only one true God and he alone deserves all glory and honour and worship and that this one true God is the only one we should centre our lives around. But it's more than just Paul knew facts about God. He knew God in the kind of full sense of that word. Knowing is more than knowing facts. It's relational, it's emotional, it's experiential. He loves God. He cares about God's honour. He hates seeing God's honour given to lifeless idols because he knows God deeply. This will sound really weird, but the Bible sometimes uses the word know as a euphemism for sex, right? It sounds weird, but it's kind of this knowing is a, is a deep thing that's more than just facts. It goes beyond that. Paul is cut to the core when he sees a city full of idols because he knows God deeply. And that drives him. Have a look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul's knowledge of God drives him to reason with anyone he can. He tries to persuade and convince anyone he can talk to about the God he knows. He went to the religious people, he went to the marketplace, there was common people and all kinds of philosophers. Paul couldn't talk to enough people. He knows God. And he cares so much that even though he's just kind of in Athens to wait for his mates, he can't help but be driven to action because of what he knows. If you're someone who knows God, what kind of knowledge do you have? Do you know the facts about God? And it kind of ends there. Do you know him personally and relationally? Do you love him? Are you driven by knowing God? If you are, then like Paul, you'll, you'll love what God loves and hate what God hates. And so we often look at the person with the super nice house by the water, or maybe this is just me, and the perfect life and the perfect job, and you go, they are living the good life. I wish I had a bit more of that. But the reality is, if they don't know God, then they're worshipping an idol that actually robs God of his glory. That person is actually to be pity they're someone who's in desperate need they need help they're not the person who has the good life and that kind of perspective only comes from truly knowing god 
You could look at this section and see, well, Paul goes to the marketplace where all the people are to kind of have maximum impact for Jesus. And then we can try to work out, well, where's the marketplace today where kind of everyone gathers and let's go there. And that would be a good thing and we should do that. But the heart of what's going on is having a deep love and knowledge of God. Once you've got that, you'll be driven in a whole bunch of different ways. For Paul, it meant he went to the marketplace. For you, it could mean anything. If you know God deeply, it will play out in your life. And so how do you grow a deep knowing and relationship with God? I'd love for you to chat to the person next to you. If you don't know them, you can ask them, do you think there's a God out there or do you think there's something out there? If you do know them, then you can ask, how do you grow or how do you think the best way is to grow a deep knowing and relationship with God? I'll give you 30, 45 seconds. All right, I'll bring you back together. It certainly wasn't enough time, but did anyone hear something where you thought, that was awesome, that was a great way, I'd love to, love to hear Did anyone hear something great about how you, someone else gets to know God and has a great relationship with them? Just yell it out if you got something. The community of faith. The community of faith, other people. Absolutely. Anyone else go one more? Who's break? We start with the Bible. I like that. Thanks, Marie. There's so many things you could say. One key one is like any relationship, it's about spending time. If you don't spend time with your spouse, you don't expect to know them well or grow in your relationship with them. A great way of spending time with God, there's so many things, but I reckon there's three spaces that are helpful. The space of church, growth group, and time alone with God. If you're doing those things, you've got a great base for a relationship with God. Other things I found helpful are kind of things outside of my scheduled time with God, occasionally carving out larger chunks to maybe go down to the beach and spend a couple of hours with God. And sometimes it's just the small moments throughout the day, like, you know, not putting on the radio when I get in the car and just spend some moments alone, just talking to God, getting to know Him. Spending time together is a great way to grow your relationship and knowledge of God. Paul's been going around, he's reasoning with anyone he can find, and there's some philosophers who are really interested in what he's saying. And so they bring him to the Areopagus, which is kind of the ruling council of Athens. And they ask Paul two things, uh, both of the same word. Have a look down at verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Athens is living up to its reputation as people that love knowledge. Uh, Luke, the author, describes them, verse 21, have a look. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. They are famous 
for their knowledge. But Paul is about to rock their world because of something that they don't know. Point two, getting to know an unknown God. Paul's given the chance to speak in front of the Areopagus and he starts in a really clever way. He doesn't smash them down straight away, straight away and tell them how awful their idols are. He starts by kind of getting them on side and meeting them where they're at. Have a look at verse 22. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I, also found, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul says, it's good that you're keen to worship. And you know how you've got that statue that's there to an unknown God, just in case there's a God that you've missed and you want to make sure you worship all of them? Let me tell you about that God. Because the God that you don't know is actually the true God of the universe. It's ironic that the Athenians are famous for two things. They're famous for their knowledge and they're famous for how many gods they worship. And yet Paul is about to tell them about the knowledge of the true God that deserves all worship. It's the thing that matters most. And so Paul's going to tell them about what they don't know about God, and he's got four things for them. Three things they should know about God, and one thing they should know about humans and people in relation to God. So let's have a look at them. The first thing they should know about God is that he can't be contained in creation. Have a look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Uh, The philosophers in Athens and lots of spiritualists today will say, God is in everything. Everything's part of God. Other people will say, you need to go to the temple, you need to go to the church to worship and meet with God. But the reality is, is that the true God can't be contained in creation. He made creation. He's over everything. He's actively involved in the world, but he can't be contained by it, constrained by it. Who's too big for that? Sometimes we want to constrain and contain God and put him in a box so that we can kind of deal with him the way that we want, when it's convenient for us. If God's located in the church or temple, then I only have to deal with him once a week when I turn up. But if he's the creator who can't be contained, then I need to deal with God on his terms, not mine. God can't be contained in creation. And the second thing is, he's not dependent on us, we are dependent on him. Have a look at verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Sometimes people act as though God is dependent on us. Uh, The Athenians, right, they had statues of God in in the temples and they needed to serve them. Which is crazy if you know what God is actually like. Because the true God, more than just not needing us, is actually the one who sustains our life at every single moment. Uh, We mostly like to think that we're very independent. You know, I don't need anyone or anything. I can get by and do things on my own. But the real reality is that God gives us life, that your very next breath is completely dependent on God giving it to you. We can't do anything without him. We rely on him daily. He's powerful and intimately involved. God doesn't depend on us. 
we actually depend completely on him. The third thing Paul wants to say is that God isn't something we make in our own image. We are made in his image. Have a look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. Uh, Back then, they literally shaped gods to look like whatever idol they wanted to make. In the eastern suburbs today, we, we tend not to make physical idols, but we still make God whoever we want him to be, or we make him in our own image. Have you ever heard someone say something like, well, I don't really think God would be like that. Or I prefer to think about him like this. Or that might be true for you, but for me, will God in the spiritual world work this way? The reality is, it doesn't matter what we want God to be like. The fact is, he is there. He is who he is, regardless of what we think or want him to be. It's a little bit like saying, I like to think about gravity as more of a suggestion. It feels a bit mean, and really, I think (laughs) gravity is just a bit negative. It always wants to pull people down. Like it's, I don't think gravity would be like that. For me, gravity's a bit nicer. For people in hard times, it just cuts them a break and they can float. It'd be crazy to say, like, gravity is objectively there and it's true. It doesn't matter what we think about it. And it is the same with God. We don't get to decide what God is like. The reality is, he actually made us. He decides what we're like. Not the other way around. Now, this isn't everything there's to know about God, but it's a good start. Paul says... God made everything. He's not constrained by creation. He doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. And he isn't something we make in our image. He's made us in his image. He's a great and glorious God. Now, the last bit of knowledge Paul wants to drop is, what did God make us for? Paul says there's two things. See if you can pick them out as we read. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Do you see them both? To live on all the face of the earth and to seek God. To live on all the faces of the earth and to seek God. That first part, to live on the face of the earth, goes right back to page one of the Bible. This is what God said when he made the first humans. I didn't have a slide here, Julia, but if you press next, it'll be up there. Genesis 1.28. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. The first command and purpose God gives people is to fill the earth. And connected with it is to care for the earth and to enjoy it. When God made people, he gave us a special place in creation. To not just be part of creation, but to look after it under him. We're made to care for the earth and to enjoy it. But that's not all. God also made us to seek him. That's what he says back in Acts. We are made to find relationship with God. That's what's good for us. 
That's what God made us for. See, built into us is this deep desire to seek something. Everyone's seeking something. We're all looking for something to find meaning and purpose and security in. And people look for it in all kinds of places. But we are made to find it in God. And this is a really profound truth once you realise it. The things we seek after that aren't God ultimately always disappoint. They always under-deliver and they're actually all things that can be taken away. You can lose those things. Uh, Jim Carrey, an actor you might know who he is, he once famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. The guy who found everything he was ever seeking and got there said, this isn't it. Isn't that incredible? We are made to seek after something. We're made to seek after God. And when you find him, you'll see he's the only one who never lets you down. And he's the only thing you can never lose, no matter what. It is so good. But is it hard to find him? Is he far away? Verse 27. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. If you want to find God, he's not far away. Do you know God? Do you know what God made you for? If you don't know God, we'd love to introduce you to him. Stick around at church. Write something on your Connect card. We would love to introduce you to the God who made you and loves you. So how should we respond? How should we respond to this God? And really, how can we know that all of this stuff is true? How can we know for certain? Point three, repent and be reassured. Have a look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. All of us have at times ignored God. Either we've never really known about God like the Athenians. Or we haven't truly known God because we've sought after other things. We've ignored God. Why is that so bad? was because of who we are and who God is. So there's certain relationships where it's bad to ignore someone and then there's going to be consequences for it. But the consequences kind of grow depending on who it is that you're ignoring. So when you ignore a text from a friend, it's not that bad. But if you're a student who ignores your teacher, the consequences go up. If you ignore the police, the consequences go up again. If you ignore the queen who gives a direct command to you, The consequences are pretty high at that point. But when you ignore the God of the universe who made you to to love him, the consequences are astronomical. Verse 30 says that until now, God has overlooked our ignorance. He could have wiped us out instantly and he'd be right to do it. God deserves all glory, all worship, all honour. And by not giving it to him, he would be in his right to judge and punish us right away. And God's punishment is death. It's really significant. But God hasn't done that. He's overlooked our ignorance for a time. 
Why? To give us time to repent. How should we respond to God? Verse 30 again. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. God has set a day where he will judge the world. But he's left a window in history where people have an opportunity to repent before that day. And that time is now. What is repenting? Repenting is chucking a yui, right? Repenting is doing a U-turn. It's like when you're driving down the freeway and you realise you're going the wrong way and so you need to turn around to go back the right way. God wants us to turn away from ignoring him, to turning away from seeking after things that aren't him and to run to him, to know him truly, to love him, to be in a relationship with him, to put our trust in him. It is an amazing display of love that God would do this. A day will come where we'll have to face up for ignoring the God who made us. But before that day comes, we can turn to him and we can see him on the last day as our friend who will give us eternal life. It is an amazing privilege rather than see him as our enemy to experience eternal death. It is incredible news. But how do we know that all this stuff is true? How do we know that this is the God that's real and that the day of judgment really is coming? That's a big question, isn't it? Verse 31. Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You can be completely sure that this is the true God and that the day of judgment is coming because God raised Jesus from the dead. In raising Jesus from the dead, God showed his authority and power over the world and his authority and power to make good on big promises. If God has the power to promise to raise Jesus from the dead and then do it, you can trust that when he says a day of judgment is coming, it really will happen. There's heaps of evidence that God raised Jesus from the dead. Hundreds of people saw him after Jesus was dead for three days. At one, at one point, Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. And Paul says in one of his letters, go ask them. At the time when he wrote them, most of the witnesses are still alive. Paul says, go ask them. If you want to check out the evidence more, we spend a whole week looking at it in our life series. We're going to be starting it in term two after Easter. We'd love you to come to that. You can know that all this is true because God raised Jesus from the dead. So can you know God? Absolutely. He's not far from each one of us. Can you be certain you've put all your chips in the right basket? God raised Jesus from the dead so you can be absolutely certain. And does your knowledge of God drive you? If you get to know him deeply, it absolutely will. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can know you. Thank you so much that even though we deserve nothing except condemnation and death from ignoring you, you want to give us life and love and relationship with you. Please help us to turn to you.
Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that we can know that you're real, that you're there, that we're not alone in this universe. Thank you that we don't have to question and wonder. We can know for certain that these things are true because we have heard and seen your risen Jesus. Thank you that you give us so much evidence of that. Father, we pray that we might be deeply changed because we deeply know you. Help us to spend time with you. Help us to get to know you. Grow our love for you. May that drive us deeply wherever we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.